We're so honored that you joined us for this week's message here at Hope Church in Kalispell, Montana. Our hope is that you will be encouraged and challenged in your relationship with Jesus. Be blessed as you listen to this week's message. Well, today is the final day of the series Riptide, and I'm excited to bring you a message that kind of been stern in my heart. When I look at everything that's happening in our world today, and I look at the state of the church and Christianity, um, it's pretty evident. There, there are things that as we intentionally try to pursue God and step out in faith, there are things like riptides that will try to pull you away from God and get you to be in a place of stagnancy where you're not challenged, that you're not stepping out in faith, that you're not believing for the more that God has for you. But there's this principle at work that I recognize as a pastor, and that principle is this, that every time you make a conscious decision and, in, and get intentional about pursuing Jesus, there is undoubtedly things that are going to, like a riptide, try to pull you away from those things that God has for you. And so we have to be extremely intentional and we have to be steadfast in our pursuit of Jesus, amen? And so um, I want us to look at a passage of scripture in Luke chapter 10 today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Luke chapter 10. This is probably the most famous parable out of all the parables of Jesus, yet oftentimes we could miss some of the truth and more importantly, we could miss the heart of Jesus in some of these parables. And so I want to read this parable to you in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, going down to verse 37. It says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. How many of you know that's never a great idea? <laughs> and, um, and he tests Jesus. He says this, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice the phrasing. Last time that I was able to preach to you a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of the rich young ruler, and he had the exact same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you don't understand um, the culture and even understand some of the verbiage in the original language, you could miss out on some very important um, concepts that I think Scripture is trying to teach us. And, and one of them that I'll point out to you is this. When they asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There was this connotation that the way they lived, their religiosity, every, what they did as far as following the commandments of God, the scriptures of God, that's what gave them eternal life. Now, oftentimes we mistakenly think of eternal life as some place that we go to when we pass from this life to the next. Now, in Jewish culture, they believed that the soul lived for eternity. Like, even though your body may physically die, your life, your soul, which is the seat of your will, your mind, your emotions, is your life. And so how your soul does and what you believe, so in other words, there's only two places when you pass from this life to the next that your soul can go to. One is heaven and one is hell, but either way, your soul lives for eternity. But oftentimes when we read a scripture like this and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We can mistakenly believe that he's talking about what must I do to go to heaven? And there is undoubtedly an aspect of that, 
But actually, the connotation isn't what must I do to go to heaven, but what must I do to experience life right now in the present? See, eternal life to them was not just something that you attain to after you die and go to heaven. Eternal life was something that you can experience right here, right now. And so this man isn't just asking, what must I do to go, what good things must I do to go to heaven, which is what a lot of us believe, but he was asking, what must I do to experience life right now? And so Jesus answered him, I love Jesus, always answers the question with the question. He says, what is written in the law? Knowing he's an expert in the law. He replied, how do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And I love this part. Just like a good lawyer, comma, and comma, in asterisk, fine print, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says this to him. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. And, but he wanted to justify himself. Now, I think that's something that's interesting. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who exactly is my neighbor? <laughs> so now, part of Jewish culture, they actually believe that God wanted them to hate anybody who was not like them. If you were different from them, believed differently, if you, had, uh, you were a different race, you were a different color, you were, you were a different culture, then you weren't just my neighbor, you were actually my enemy. And they believed that God wanted them to hate their enemies. So when this lawyer is trying to ask Jesus, uh, what's my exemption here? I, I call this the loophole of love. He's trying to find a loophole in the commandment. Like, where's the limitation? Where does it stop? Who do I have to love and who can I be exempt from loving? That's really what this man is asking. And in reply, Jesus said, I love Jesus. Not only does he ask a question with a question, but then when he gets down to it, he doesn't just give him a straight answer. He gives him a story. <laughs> and he says this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and when he was attacked, by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, who was also a, a priest, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan now, Samaritans were enemies of the Jewish people. They were one of those people that were different. They were a different bloodline. They lived differently, thought differently, a little bit differently. And so they were hated. They were loathed by each other, Samaritans and Jews. And yet here were two Jewish priests that passed by this man that was hurting and broken and in need. And yet an enemy, a Samaritan, comes but as a, Samar a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now that word means compassion. He had compassion on him. And he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Wine was used as a disinfectant oil to soothe the wounds. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day, he took out two denarii. Now, one denarii was equal to about a day's wage and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Then the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word that challenges us, that convicts us, that changes us. Father, today we give you this time that we have together. I ask that you would anoint me to preach your word, not just in words, but in power. Let it be the power to change us and transform us, to become more like your son, Jesus. God, that's why we're here. That's why we came to church today. We came to worship you. We came to leave differently than when we came in. So we give you our hearts and we give you our minds. And God, now we pray for our nation. Would you do me a favor, church? Would you pray with me for our nation? And um, I want you to pray with me. This is when we pray corporately. We pray together for our nation. Uh, in this season, I've been burdened to pray for our nation and believe that we need to do that more as a church. So let's pray. God, we pray that you would awaken your church in this very hour for such a time as this. God, I pray that your heart would get in our heart. God, I pray that you would awaken us to the people that are around us that are hurting and broken. God, I pray that you would use us to start a revival, a revival in this nation that brings this, back, this nation back to you. God, that recognizes we have turned from you and gone our own way and ask you to forgive us and heal our land. God, we desperately need you to move on this nation and turn this nation back to you. One nation under God. And God, we lift up the people of Afghanistan. We pray that you would cover and protect the Christians of that nation. God, that you would eradicate evil out of that country and that you would use missionaries to bring the gospel, the good news to that nation. God, we lift up Haiti to you. We pray for provision for that country in the wake of an earthquake, that you would use this to not just physically shake that nation, but you would use it to shake the spiritual condition of that nation and turn their hearts to you in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. The title of my message to you this morning is The Eye of the Storm. The Eye of the Storm. Now, I don't know if you've been following the news or weather patterns, but lately we've had a couple of hurricanes. We're in the middle of hurricane season right now, especially in the, the Gulf states. And if you've ever looked at the weather pattern of a hurricane, and by the way, oftentimes riptides, which is a undercurrent or an undertow that on the surface of the water, it looks safe to swim in, to be in. But a, a riptide is an undercurrent that has the power in the undercurrent to pull you under the water and take you in a place you don't want to go to where it literally, you, you don't have the ability to swim out of it and come up for air. And it sucks the life out of you. I believe spiritually speaking, this is exactly what the world, the enemy of our soul, the devil wants to do. And if we're not careful, um, this play on words to the title of my message this morning is the I capital I of the storm. Because what happens in a storm, a tropical storm, is if you've ever noticed the weather pattern, you see the swirls of clouds, you see the swirls of the storm, 
But there's this thing called the eye of the storm. The eye of the storm is the very epicenter of the storm, where it originates from. But something ironic about a hurricane, there's something ironic about a storm, and that is this, that in the eye of the storm, you're protected from the storm. Like, there could be a a mass, and and actually um, scientists will say about 20 to 40 miles can be the eye of the storm, where there is this... uh, There's this calm in the middle of this storm. Like all around it, there's destruction. There's torrential downpours of rain. There are high winds. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's destruction all around it. But in the eye of the storm, you're protected from the storm. In other words, you're insulated from everything that's happening around you. You're nice. You're comfortable. There's blue sky, sun above you. You don't have and are experiencing a lot of the things that other people around you are experiencing, but you're protected. I think that's a lot like how a lot of us live our life. Even in our Christian life, if we're not careful, and I believe that this is what this passage, Jesus was trying to help this man understand that you could have your own personal relationship with God. You can even be pursuing God and have a wonderful relationship with God. But Jesus came to earth to try to make this connection and turn what the uh, pastors of the day, what the religious leaders of the day, the priests of the day, they had created this religiosity that said, as long as I am good with God, then I, ha- I can inherit eternal life. That my relationship with God is the only thing that matters. Other people around me can be suffering. They could be in need. In fact, Jesus rebuked them for putting more burdens on the people and creating this religious system that sucked the life out of the life of God that he came to give them. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And one of his missions was to show the heart of the Father to restore people back in their broken relationship with God. And he was constantly trying to do that by the way he lived his life. He stopped for the one that was hurting. He recognized and was not only present with God because the Bible says that he only did what he heard the Father say and he only did what he saw the Father doing. And so he was constantly present with God. And because he was present with God, he was able to be present with people and recognize that even though he had a mission, and oftentimes the disciples, they tried to protect him and they tried to surround him as, and try to kind of push him along. Like, we got to go. We've got things to do. We've got agendas. We've got, we got ministry to do. And yet Jesus would constantly stop for the one that was crying out, constantly sensitive to the needs of the people around him. And I believe that one of the greatest things that will suck the life of God out of us is this thing that is present in our culture. And if we're not careful, I believe it has crept into the church in that we live this very Christian selfish lifestyle where we get sucked into this thing that we get our fill of God. We come to church, we worship, we know the Bible, and we're going to heaven, and we're good. But all around us, all hell is breaking loose. And you look at it, what's happening in our society today. And that's exactly what I believe is happening. That, that we might stay in our churches and we're, we're in the center, we're in the eye of the storm right here. 
where we have peace, we're experiencing joy, we're experiencing and celebrating the goodness of God, and that is a wonderful thing. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But Jesus is trying to make, the, make this connection and hit it home with, with this teacher, this, this priest, where he's trying to show him that if we're going to become mature in our relationship with God, that Christian maturity is ever, it is completely linked to how much not only we love God, but our evidence of how much we love God is how much we love people. That even John would take it a step further and he said, if you say you love your brother, or if you, excuse me, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. Because it is impossible to love God and have a deep relationship with him but yet lack love for other people. And if we're going to be honest with you, there is a, a part of Christendom, especially Americanized Christianity, where our relationship with God even can become all about us. Like, even our prayers can become so, God protect me, God bless me, God help me get this new job, God, you know, sell my house, that's where I am right now. But, um, you know, we could get into this place where what we want from God becomes more important than our relationship with God. And, and even further, it, becomes, it can become this very selfish form of Christianity where even coming to church becomes all about what I get from God, getting my fill, getting my worship on. And we leave this place and we have no love in our heart for other people. We do just like what this priest and this Levite did. I've got to get to church. I've got to get to my Bible study. I've got to get to my connect group. I gotta do my devotion, and we pass by on the other side. And we, even though we see people and we see their needs and we know that people are hurting and they're broken, we don't really see enough and stop long enough to let their pain and their suffering and what they're going through get in our heart to where we're stirred with enough compassion for other people. And this is something that you have, to, you and I, and God set up a way for us to intentionally break that spirit of selfishness and this I culture that you and I are immersed in every day. And one of the ways that he did that was he invented this thing called the family, <laughs> right? He invented this thing called marriage. He invented this thing called parenting. Now, I don't know how many of you parents out there, but I can tell you, for me personally, one of the greatest things that has helped eradicate selfishness out of my life is when I became a parent. Somebody with me. I mean, for those of you who are newly married without kids, God bless you. You're in the honeymoon phase. Soak it up, baby, for all it's worth. Because I hate to break it to you, once you start having kids, it doesn't last long. And I remember, and a lot of people really actually struggle with this, do you understand that even in marriage, there are phases of married life. Like there are phases and seasons that you go through, and each season is designed to help you to learn to love like Jesus. And a lot of people get stuck in that transition from when it's just the two of you and you could do anything. You could go on a, a trip on a whim and it doesn't affect anybody. You could stay up all night, sleep in late, eat what you want. You didn't have to worry about changing anybody's poopy diaper. You didn't have to worry about feeding somebody else. You didn't have to worry about caring for them, watching them, right? But uh, 
One of the things that over the years that we have loved a way of connecting together as a family, on Saturday mornings, oftentimes we would do a big breakfast together. Now I got five kids, we got a big family, a lot of mouth feeds, four boys. And uh, so we would just cook a massive big breakfast on Saturday. It's one of our favorite things to do as a family and one of our ways to connect. And inevitably, our kids, you know, you put that food on the table, they wake up late on a Saturday morning and they are, they are hungry. And it's kind of like in Finding Nemo when they throw that fish to the pelicans. Mine, 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 mine. Like everybody's, everybody's like digging into the food, taking all the food. And inevitably, my wife would stop them and say, now, everybody gets two pieces of bacon. Like that's all you get. And, and even if we had more, first you take two pieces of bacon and we're trying to teach our kids not to be so selfish, right? Don't take like a pile of bacon and he gets one. Because never, you know how it works, right? They break into a fight. He got three pieces of bacon. I only got one. So we say, you only can have two pieces of bacon. And then whatever's left over, we'll see who gets it. And so I love my wife. She always would tell our kids after everybody got their two pieces of bacon and there was more bacon to be had, she trained them to ask dad if he would like the last piece of bacon. <laughs> And I said, hallelujah, baby. And all the dads said, amen. And I said, God bless her. And I said, I, I think that's biblical because, I mean, I think the man who brings home the bacon needs the last piece of bacon, right? Can I get a witness? And so, but what it would do, and what I tried to do as a father is even when I wanted that last piece of bacon, I would tell them, no, you go ahead and have it. And I would do that even intentionally, even if I wanted it, because I wanted to show them that sometimes, even though you want something, it's better and you're more blessed to give than to receive and to be generous and to be selfless. That's something that we have to be taught. It doesn't just happen, right? And yet we can get into this place spiritually where it can just become all about us and our relationship with God. I was reminded of this I was reading a story about Martin Buber. Martin Buber was a Jewish theologian, and he was a man that studied the scripture, that knew the scripture. Uh, his doctrine, you know, he, he was into doctrine. He was a theologian. He was all about it, and he was all about his personal relationship with God, and he tells this story of a time in his spiritual life that changed his life forever. And it was that one morning he had his time with God and he said it was like one of those heavenly moments. You know those moments where you do your devotional in the morning, you spend time with Jesus and you just get so full of God and you feel his presence with you, you feel his joy welling up in you. It just, it's one of those mornings, it's wonderful. And we all need to experience those. But, but he says, he recounts that he was studying the scriptures after the, that moment and he hears a, a unexpected knock on the door. He goes to answer the door and it's this young man who's a prominent leader in the community and he welcomes him in and the young man comes and sits down and um, he gives him his time and the young man had some questions about God and spiritual life and what life is really, you know, like with God and, and just he was longing, he was searching for something and and Martin Buber says that he gave him, you know, the right answers. He gave him the answers that he knew to be true from Scripture and everything. And then the young man thanked him for his time, shook his hand, and he left. 
Well, come to find out a few days later, Martin Buber finds out that this young man had committed suicide. And he actually came to see Martin, not to hear about doctrine, not to hear about theology, but because his soul was longing to know the heart of the Father, longing to really know that God loved him. And yet, somehow, Martin completely missed this moment, this encounter with this young man, and it said it absolutely wrecked him. That he, he fell on his knees and had to repent before God because he recognized that even though like, he was with the young man and even though he may have given him the right answers, that he was not present with him. That he didn't see him and recognize that this young man was going through something and that he, more than a scripture thrown at him, more than good theology, he needed to experience the love of the Father. And he missed out on being that conduit. And he says that it marked his life forever. That from that moment on, he would always, in fact, he wrote a book called I It or I Thou. And he recognized that we could see people as its, as objects, or we could see them as thous. We could see them for who they really are in God's sight, in God's image. And it changed his life forever. I think that you and I, we live in a day and age where everything in this culture wants you to elevate yourself above God, wants you to elevate yourself and find significance in what you do, and everything is geared towards that way. You look at social media, um, you look at our culture, it's trying to, and feeding into this thing of isolationism, that I might be comfortable in my world, in the eye of the storm, everybody around me may be hurting, may be desperate, but I don't need to share Jesus with them because I'm okay. And, and if we're not careful, we could get into this um, eye of the storm and live our lives that way. Meanwhile, in, in this day and age that we're living in, come on, if, if there's anything that I feel as a local pastor that we have to be awakened to is what is happening in our world right now. Our world is being hit with the hurricane of evil. This world is being hit with the hurricane of sin. This world is being hit with the hurricane of anxiety and fear and, and even uh, this virus that is ravaging people physically and trying to pull them away and distract us from what really matters in life and that is loving people. Paul trying to prepare Timothy, one of his spiritual sons, for leading the church, he said it like this in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. He said, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. But he doesn't talk about the sin out in the world. I want to show you who he's talking to. He says this, people will be what? Lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And then he caps off, and this is how we know it's geared to people in the church, not outside the church like we could wrongly think, but having a form of godliness, but denying its power. You have to understand something, 
that the power of God that he gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they are all to equip us to love people. They're not just for our sake. How do I know it? Have you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14? I love Paul. But if we're going to do this, we have to figure out a way to break off this selfishness, and it doesn't just happen. You're going to have to be intentional about it. I'm going to have to be intentional about it. So how do we do that? The first thing is this. We need to learn to love like Jesus. Now, I, I, ver I verbalize this intentionally. Learn to love like Jesus. Because this doesn't just happen. We learn over time to love like Jesus. How? From being in relationship with other people. That's why God set this whole thing up, the church, it's family. He set up the family so that when you're annoyed by your wife and when your husband is chewing too loud and it annoys you or he's snoring or your wife comes home by shopping way too much and racked up the credit card bill and annoys you, that even in the middle of it, you would learn to serve and love and give and love like Jesus. And that's a learning process. It's something that we learn over time to do as more of the heart of God gets in us. But, but look, you have to understand that, that all throughout Scripture, Jesus was trying to teach us about this connection between loving God and loving people and that you can't love God without loving people. It's impossible. You can't be empowered. You can't be gifted. You can have all the gifts in the world that you want, but you won't be able to do it. In fact, um, I want to read to you the message version of 1 Corinthians 13, 3. They have the NIV version, but I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the message version because it's just so good. It says this. Are you ready? I'm trying to find it. <laughs> Lost it. Okay, we're going to read the NIV version. It says this, If I give you all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast but do not love, I gain nothing. And now I'm going to give you the message version. I, I, I found it. I did, really. I promise. It says this, If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love... I've gotten nowhere. So no matter, listen to this, so no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. I could be full of God. I could be full of his presence. I could be full of his spirit. But if I don't use his presence in me, if I don't use his Holy Spirit inside of me, if I don't use the giftings that he's put inside of me to love people, it means absolutely nothing. How much I know about the Bible doesn't matter. What I do doesn't matter. All that matters is, am I loving people like Jesus? That's all. And he puts it right in between 1 Corinthians 12, which is about spiritual gifts, and 1 Corinthians 14. Right smack in the middle, Paul reminds us, you could prophesy, you know, till the lights come home. You, you could give, you could be burning, you could do all these incredible things for God. But if you don't love, you have absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And sometimes even in our service to other people, we can be selfish in that we're doing it 
in a way where we're serving, but we're checking off a box, like I did my good today, instead of serving out of the heart of God. It reminds me of a, of a funny story that I read about um, a really rich, wealthy man. One day he was in his limo, and his limousine driver was driving him to work, and as they were driving down one of the blocks, they noticed these two homeless men sitting on the side of the street, and they were eating grass. And he, he yells to his driver, he says, pull over right now, immediately. So the driver, confused, but he pulls over. The man gets out of his car, and he says, he says tell me, why are you guys eating that grass? I said, because we don't have any money to buy food. And the man looks at him, and like he has an idea, and he says, you know what? He says, come with me. I'll bring you to my house. And, um, and he says, get in. And the one man says, but, but sir, I have, I have a wife and three kids. And he says, it's okay. Bring them too. And the other man says, sir, I have a wife and six kids. And he says, you know what? The more the merrier. Everybody, come on, let's get in the limo, and I'll bring you to my house. So they're in the limousine, and they're driving to this man's mansion. And, and one of the men is just so grateful. He's just overwhelmed with gratitude. And he says to the rich man, he says, thank you so much, sir. I can't tell you how much this means to me. And, and the man says, no, no, it, it, it's no problem, really. He says, you're going to love the grass at my mansion. It's over a foot tall. <laughs> that was funnier than you thought. I thought that was funny. All right, what do you call a selfish bomb? A mine. <laughs> Why are urologists selfish? Because it's all about number one. Wow. I did win the dad joke, you know. I am the dad joke champion of this church, so I just thought I'd throw it out there a little bit. <laughs> but look at, I love C.S. Lewis. One of C.S. Lewis's quotes that I think is really significant because if you're like me, too many times it's, we don't feel like loving people. Like, it's not top of mind. And so we can get stuck even, how do I love people the way Jesus did? And I love this quote, and I think it's really significant. He said this, don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Now, this is where you have to understand that our will comes in. Part of your nature, your flesh, your, your soul actually, is your mind, your will, your emotions. This is where you have to direct your will. See, we don't even understand biblical love. We don't understand how to love like Jesus because in our modern day culture, we've, uh, they have lowered the standard of love. In fact, young people are waiting longer and longer to get married. Why? Because they want the benefits of a relationship without the commitment. Biblical love, the way that Jesus loved, was agape love. Agape love is not based on feelings. It's not based on even a, uh, a kinship spirit between us. Agape love is the highest form of biblical love. It's the way that Jesus loved. It's sacrificial love. It's love that says, I choose to love you no matter what. It's actually the kind of love that God meant for the covenant of marriage. And so there, we don't even understand the concept of covenant relationship anymore. 
But that's the kind of relationships that God desired for you and I to have. Not that we always feel it. Feelings are great. They're wonderful. There's a place for them. Yes, connection, there's definitely a place for that. But you're not always going to feel it. There's a honeymoon phase that ends. And I've seen it even in church where people come to church. I love this church. And then eight months later, they're gone. Why? The feeling went away. I'm just not feeling it anymore. Whatever happened to the commitment? You cannot love somebody without being committed to them. Not the kind of love that Jesus commands us to love. That kind of love is saying, like, I am committed to love you no matter what. You're my brother. You're my sister. You, you, you might even be my enemy. Jesus is, is blowing this man's mind, painting this picture that even people that hate you, that don't like you, that we're called to love those people as ourselves, to lay down our life for those people. <laughs> There's a passage of scripture that says, you know, you, uh, you say you love your brother, your friends, your sisters. Well, well done, good for you. But that's easy love. Anybody can do that. Worldly people do that. In fact, I meet people all the time that are nicer than Christians outside of the church. I hate to say that. And, and they don't even understand this kind of love. And if we're going to learn to love like Jesus, we have to allow people into our lives. We have to recognize that God wants to use your marriage. He wants to use your family. He wants to put you in a family of believers in a church so that as you rub elbows with other people, that as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another, it rubs the selfish off you. It gets the me off me. It gets my eyes on you. If we're going to do that, the second thing we need to do is we need to give ourselves away. Come on, the great theologian Bono. And you give yourself away. Anybody? Come on. That's just not only a good song, that's good theology. You got to give yourself away. Continually. This is what, this is what Jesus did. You got to put people and their interests before themselves. Look at Philippians 2, 1 through 4. This is, this is another great passage that Paul was trying to encourage us. I love the message paraphrase. It says this, if you've gotten anything out of, at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't have just Facebook friendships. Don't have shallow friendships. Don't have shallow acquaintances where you come to church and you say hi and you talk about football and you, a few things, but you never get in relationship with other people. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. And the last thing is this. If we're going to love and learn to love like Jesus, and if we're going to give ourselves away, and one of the greatest ways that you can give yourself away is serve somebody. To serve them. But sometimes we are so in our zone. We've got our checklist of things to do. We've got our agenda that we are not present with God and we are not present with people. 
I love this quote from Jack Hiles. It says this, love is the doorway through which the human soul passes from selfishness to service. It's the passageway. It's what gets me out of myself in my world. It lets me get on my knees and wash somebody's feet and serve them, to love them. But most of the time, our problem is this last point. We're not present. We need to be present, not only with God, but with people that God has put around us. Do you know there's two words for time in the Bible? One is chronos, which is where we get the word literally time. And the other is kairos. Kairos is a different form of time. Kairos means a specified time, a, a moment. Kairos, or chronos rather, where life is measured in minutes, Kairos is more like life measured in moments. We tend to live our life by minutes, but the things that will last for eternity are the moments that we have with God and with people because we're present. And we might not be able to relate to these men who pass by on the other side, but how many times have we been distracted on our phone thinking about things we have to do. We've got our schedule so packed, jammed tight that I don't even have room for people in my life. I don't have room to serve in my church. I don't have room to go to a connect group. And we completely miss moments because we're not present. One of my greatest fears when I get to heaven when Jesus shows me a picture of my life and I walk by that person I was hopeless and desperate and because I wasn't present with God and didn't hear his still small voice I missed out on a moment that maybe God wanted me to love somebody that needed love this week has been a hard week emotionally for many reasons one of them is that there was this young man who took his life way too soon and I'm sick of hearing stories about young people getting so desperate so hopeless they're taking their own life the other is the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 and even my wife and I we were watching a little clip of some documentary on 9-11 and how in the middle of that destruction, it brought the people of this nation together. Churches were packed. People recognized their need for God that didn't recognize it before and were coming to faith in droves. And it grieved me to think about how far we've drifted from that. This past week, and I'll end with this story, was invited to some um, people's house over for dinner. Went over their house and, and we're, we're just getting to know them. They're newer to our church. And this man was getting um, choked up, telling me how he's longing to just get back into a place where 
He's listening to God's voice and he's present with him. Present with other people. And he starts telling me this story that just impacted me and shook me to the core. He said, one time I was in a grocery store and I had my grocery list and I went through the store, got my list and got in the checkout line and I'm sitting, standing there in the checkout line and I feel the Holy Spirit tell me, I need to go share Jesus with this young man at a checkout counter a couple aisles down. And he did what a lot of us would probably do. At first, he just kind of brushed it off. He said, no, I'm in this line already. I don't want to get out and make a scene. And besides, how am I supposed to do that when he's, you know, checking people out and he's working and I don't want to impose. And besides, that would be really awkward and uncomfortable. Just like for many of us, we sit by people at work. We run into people all the time and, and, and we have this hope that an anchor for our soul. And there are people all around us that we pass by on the other side every day because it would be awkward to share Jesus with them. It would make us feel uncomfortable. And God forbid that it inconveniences me or makes me uncomfortable. And he was standing there in line fighting all these things going on and thoughts inside of him. And so he brushed it off and he stayed in the line and he heard, heard the Holy Spirit say, you need to go share Jesus with him now. And so he obeyed. He got out of line with his stuff and he got into this young man's line. And when he got up to check out, he leaned over to the man and he, he looked him in the eye and he said, we need to talk about Jesus. And the young man looked him in the eye and said, I know. And he got out from behind the checkout and they walked down the frozen food aisle and in the frozen food aisle, right in the middle of that store, he shared the gospel with him. He shared Jesus with him. This young man explained that all his life, his mom was a Christian. She prayed for him. She talked to him. He went to church, but he never gave his life to Jesus, surrendered his life to him. And they sat there and they prayed in the middle of the frozen peas. <laughs> and he surrendered his life to Jesus and this joy came over his face. He said he shook the man's hand. He went through his checkout and went home. A couple days later, he found out that on the way home from work that night, this man went around a corner and his car flipped and rolled and he died in a car accident. He found out when his memorial service was, it turned out it was in the parking lot of the grocery store with hundreds of the grocery store employees and friends and family. And he sat there during the memorial in the back and he heard the pastor even say, you know, we hope he's in heaven now, we're believing that maybe he is. And the mother was just a mess, as anyone would be. And after, at the end of the memorial service, he went up to the mom. She didn't know him at all. She said, he said, I need to tell you something. He said, the night that he passed away, God told me to share Jesus with him, and he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And now you can take courage that your son is in heaven. And the woman just lost it. She broke down weeping. And she said, thank you. She said, do you know what? He texted me. We were waiting for him at home because he, he was so excited. He said, I have a surprise for you and I can't wait to come home and tell you. And he never would have made it if it wasn't for that man being present. Jesus present 
somebody that needed to know and hear that Jesus loves them. And how many times have we missed a Kairos moment? How many times? Because we've just been so consumed with ourselves and our agenda, what we got going on in our life. We've missed a moment. God help us. Come on, I don't really feel like this message needs a response. I'm wondering, and I'm gonna raise my hand just so you know. How many of us would say, Pastor Lance, that's me. I'm tired of being stuck in my own little world. I wanna be more present with Jesus. I wanna be more present with people around me that are broken, that are hurting, that are lost. Come on, just slip your hand up. I don't wanna be so caught up in the eye of the storm. There can be people hurting, broken all around me and I completely miss it because I'm not present. I wanna pray for you right now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you come. Awaken the love of the Father in us. Awaken your heart for your people, God. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might be present with you, that we might hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit and the promptings and that we would not deny you because of our own inconvenience and uncomfortableness and awkwardness. But God, we commit to you to say, God, we'll, we'll do what you say. We'll speak what you have us to speak. We'll look out for the one. Help us, Lord. Help us, God, we need you. We can't do this without you. In Jesus' name. And now I would be amiss if I didn't give an opportunity for some of you that maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. Like that young man, no matter what happens when you leave, no matter what happens today, you can be reassured that you will spend and you will experience eternal life right now and forever by surrendering your life to Jesus. The Bible says that if you will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will confess it with your mouth, you will ask him to forgive you your sin and repent of your sin and surrender your life to him. You can be born again and you can have the very spirit of God living inside of it. You can experience the love of Jesus today, right here, right now. If that's you, just raise your hand right now. Bold to say, I wanna bless you right now. Right now, don't wait, this is your moment. God bless you. Come on, can we give it up for those people? Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Hope Church. If you enjoyed this message, you can easily support the ministry of Hope Church at hopechurchmt.com give. Also follow us on social media at hopechurchmt. Be blessed and have a great week.